Thanks very much, Tony. It's good to be here with you all, and um, don't let the title put you off. Well, it's not going to be all doom and gloom, um, even though we're talking about jealousy and murder. Um, just for any who are visitors who are not familiar with 1 Samuel, just a, a really quick little catch-up, that we're in 1 Samuel, which tells the history of Israel and their first king, Saul, and then how things went badly with him, and God appointed a new king, David, well, a secretly anointed, as, as folks here will know from before, secretly anointed him by the prophet Samuel, and then we are beginning to see now in some of these chapters how David and Saul come together. So just before this, we, before where we're reading, if you want to turn there in chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, um, we have the famous story of David and Goliath. And Goliath is defeated by David, David's a hero, and then Saul meets him, and then what we're looking at tonight is what happens afterward. So let's read from 1 Samuel 18, and we'll read just the first few verses there. I'm going back into somebody else's ground, but I felt I needed to, so we're covering, the, just a, we're going to give this for context. So 1 Samuel 18, this is the word of the Lord at verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now, if you would drop down to chapter 19 and verse 11. 19 and verse 11. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. Now drop down to verse 18. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Nioth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Nioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Sikhu, and he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Nioth in Ramah. And he went there to Nioth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets? Then David fled from Nioth and Ramah, and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt, and what is my sin before your father, that he seeks my life? Now, just before we think a little more of those chapters, I'd like you to turn to just a few verses in the New Testament, in the epistle of James. James chapter 3. 
to help frame our thinking a little bit about what's happening here in 1 Samuel. James chapter 3 and verse 13. James writes, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now we go back to 1 Samuel. And our job tonight really is to figure out how everything has moved from the love fest at the start of chapter 18 to multiple murder attempts at the end of chapter 19. And of course to learn the lessons that the Holy Spirit wants us to learn along the way. And there are no prizes for figuring out that it has to do with jealousy. We can see that on the surface. Jealousy is an interesting thing, isn't it? I, I don't have stats for you, but I think it'd be safe to guess that jealousy is the, at the heart of all kinds of stories more often than any other vice. Have you noticed that? And when it comes to films, you can probably double that number. You know, there's so many uh, that have jealousy at the core of what's happening. You remember if you did, uh, if you did your A-levels or GCSEs, and, or like me, had to go further, in English lit that William Shakespeare's tragedy, Othello, gave us the color we usually associate with jealousy. When he said, oh, beware, my lord, of jealousy, it is the green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds on. Gruesome. But the green-eyed monster, jealousy. Why does it feature so often? Why do we see it come up all the time? I think it's simply that it's so common in human experience. It's so relatable. We all feel it at one time or another, and... If I'm honest, maybe more often than I'd like to admit. So we have two good-sized chapters in front of us, but we can summarize them briefly. Chapter 18 shows us two different kinds of wisdom, in the words of James 3. That is, two ways of living in the world. And chapter 19 shows us three massive roadblocks that, that Saul had to push aside on his way to total destruction. And together, these two chapters show us the reality about jealousy. That it's actually, when it comes right down to it, what it is, it's the cutting edge of selfish pride. Okay, jealousy is the cutting edge of selfish pride. And the truth about this destructive force is that if we don't kill it, it will help you justify just about anything, including killing other people. But thankfully, these chapters also point us to God's way of saving us from the green-eyed monster. So here we are in chapter 18. Two different kinds of wisdom are on display. So when we looked at James 3, well, I do that because in one sense, the signs of jealousy in, in chapters 18 and 19 of 1 Samuel, they're totally obvious, but the word jealousy doesn't actually come up. Fear, anger, hatred, we find all of those named, but those things spring from a source that is never quite explicitly labeled in the text. And James gives us words to summarize this way of living, this way of being in the world, which it may sound funny to think of it as a kind of wisdom, 
But it's wisdom in the sense that Moses spoke about back in Deuteronomy when he says, I have taught you statutes and rules. I have, as my Lord, as God my Lord commanded me, keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. In other words, he's saying, Moses is saying, the way you choose to live your life in response to the revelation from above, that will be your wisdom. It'll shape everything about you. But there is another way to live, another way to think, another way to choose, to make our decisions in life, and it looks very different. It reflects the total opposite of God's revealed will. And James describes it as the wisdom from below. And its traits are bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. This wisdom, he says, is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. And its result, well, he says, look, if you go that way, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And both these kinds of wisdom are on display in chapter 18. There's also two very different kind of trajectories, aren't there, in in chapter 18. As we come in, Saul is going downhill very much and loses his ability to win at just about anything. And David is on his way up, growing in popularity, growing in success, gaining victories, and his abilities continue to increase. And everything between Saul and David goes south. But it was fine really until verse 6. Let's just go back and read a couple of more verses. After Saul has sent David out and to go fight battles, we come kind of what's probably a previous kind of incident. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Saying nothing about the color of his eyes, but he eyed David from that day on. Saul's path of earthly wisdom started here in anger at seeing someone else's success. So first, we have the sign of jealousy that David, David was eyed from that day on. He was eyed with both anger and suspicion. And the wisdom from below sees people as one of two things, either useful to me or else as the competition to be crushed. Right? That's one of those two things. Jealousy, it's interesting to see, also limits Saul's imagination. You see, he says, what more can he want than the throne? He can't even let it enter into his mind that David might possibly want something else other than what he himself wanted most. It's interesting to notice that David, yes, he's been anointed. But Saul only knows Samuel's earlier words that the Lord has chosen a man after his own heart. He didn't know who it was or even that the anointing had taken place. Though perhaps he's beginning to suspect. And then in verses 10 to 11, we have the first spear-throwing incident where where David is brought in, he's playing the harp, the lyre before him, and and Saul gets jealous again and he tries to pin him to the wall. He throws, throws a spear and it sticks into the wall behind him and 
David has to, to dodge that. Do you know, it's interesting that even good things, something like beautifully well-played music, can stir up bitterness and hatred in the mind of someone who's jealous. Have you noticed that? And if I say that, I, I say it because I know it from experience. It doesn't have to be a bad thing that, that drives this sense of, Ugh. it was a beautiful thing, music being played, and drove him to, well, murderous violence, really, to irrational violence. And why is that? Well, it's because this, this way of being, this wisdom from below says, if they're in my way and they pose a threat, the most sensible thing is to eliminate them. It's logical. But then as you move through, you see Saul moving into increasing fear. And first it's because David has the Lord's presence and he doesn't. And then the rest of the people, Israel and Judah, love David. And you start to see a theme building. Jonathan loved David because he loved David. He made a covenant because he loved David. You have to trip over it to miss it. And then the people, they, he, they see him. This guy's going in and out and fighting and winning our battles. And they love David. And Saul sees that slipping from him. And it moves him to fear. He was afraid. He stood in fearful awe of David, the text says. And that, too, is bound to happen in the realm of earthly wisdom. Because if I'm not submitting to how God sees other people, and they're only really pawns for me to be used, I'll end up fearing them as soon as I can no longer control them. It skews everything about relationship. And then Saul's attempt then to, to get David killed slyly. He, he, he has this kind of arrangement that he was going to give the man who killed Goliath his daughter. And he's kind of now adding a few conditions. But he uses his daughter basically as bait. He said, no, I'll give you my daughter. You know, that was kind of the agreement. Just only fight the Lord's battles for me. You know, go be victorious. But then quietly under his breath, he's saying, well, why should I kill him myself when I can let the Philistines do it? He was being sly about it. And maybe it's more obvious why this way of thinking is called a kind of wisdom. Because it takes quite a lot of planning and thinking to try to pull off that kind of a scheme. As James says, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Even trying to get someone murdered. But then Saul's second, his less subtle attempt to get David killed by others comes in, in the next verses in 20 to 29. Why not let his other daughter, who, who comes in, oh, loves him. There it is again. Michal loves David. So, oh, I see, there's an opportunity not to see my daughter's happiness, not to see things go well for her, but I'll use her love for David to get David killed. Thanks, Dad. And he goes about doing that. He, now he's going to sacrifice even the affections of the people who are closest to him to get the person he perceives to be his greatest enemy. One of the problems with these kinds of schemes is they, they very often backfire. And what he does in sending him out saying, okay, you're worried about a bride price? Well, go kill a, th a hundred Philistines and bring back proof. We'll not talk too much about what the proof was. It's in the text. It's a little gory. But he says, oh, great, I can do that. And he goes and kills 200. Brings back, has a great victory for the nation and comes back. And what Saul has ended up doing is giving him a bigger stage and a wider audience and showing he's better than anybody actually thought. And so by the end of chapter 18, Saul is left like a bomb with a lit fuse ready to go off. And that pride-fueled jealousy was starting to devour everyone around him and consume him. 
And that wisdom from below says, there's nothing else except what I do and what I get, including, well, maybe what people think of me. And people will suffer because of our jealousy, but perhaps no one more than ourselves, eventually. If we insist, as Saul did, on seeing ourselves and our desires as the big goal of our lives and become so used to seeing even those nearest to us as just means to our ends. Where that ends is in isolation, fear, and as James will say, unfruitfulness, barrenness. But what's going on with David throughout all this? He's quite quiet, actually. He doesn't say a lot. Dutiful, unassuming, victorious, successful. He handles himself well in some pretty sticky spots. He's not presented as being perfect. There's some real questions about, you could ask even, it does, he's loved a lot, but there's nothing said about his love back very often, anyway. And leaving Mikal the way he did when, when he has to run for it, well, and not seeing her again, we find out until Second Samuel, till, well, actually till she was useful to him. There are questions there. He's not presented as perfect, and just wait till you get to Second Samuel to think more about that. But what he is presented at is someone who's living out of a certain kind of wisdom. And more often in David's case, this is coming up because of what he doesn't say and does not do. For instance, he doesn't just go up and demand that Saul fulfill, hey, you said you would give me uh, or give the victor over Goliath your daughter, so hand her over. You know, and, and I obviously deserve this, so you know, I'm worth this and you're lucky to have me, actually, so pay up. He's quiet. He doesn't push. He doesn't shove his way in. He's humble, actually, about it. And according to chapter 18 and verse 30, David had more success than Saul. But that phrase is probably better translated, as as some of the older translations do. He behaved himself more wisely than everybody else. More wisely. And that's James's contrasted vision of the wisdom that comes from above. Who's wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And that wisdom is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And the result is a harvest of righteousness is that's sown in peace by those who make peace. The wisdom from above, what characterizes it? What was different about David? Well, that kind of wisdom says, this thing I'm involved in here is bigger than me. And David had shown this characteristic, especially back when he fought Goliath. He's basically going out and saying, look, with these weak weapons, I'll take you down because you've picked a fight with God and you have it in for his people and his name and his people are at stake. So really, you don't have a hope because you're fighting God. And the, his desire to see the name and the people of God preserved motivated him. He said, this isn't about me. This is, this is much bigger. Now, most of us aren't working at the highest levels of government or in a palace somewhere. Maybe, sorry, maybe I missed somebody. Um, but the tendency to see ourselves as most important, we might even say as king, as king of me, as king of my life, it comes up in different ways, doesn't it? What difference would it make if we could get this right? 
There's a book called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. Highly recommend it. Conflict and dealing with it. And he uses an illustration in that book of a, a, somebody he worked with. There was a dispute over work and litigation was, was, it was imminent. But both sides agreed to, to do mediation with him. And that's what he does. And during that process, one of the men decided to, to walk away from his rights. He was clearly in the right over the dispute, but he decided to step away from it. He said, I'm not going to pursue this. I've decided this is not for me to pursue, even though I think I could win, and even though it's going to cost me money. He said, this is, I'm going to step back from this because I want to make peace over this, and the relationship is, is, is just being destroyed. And that man was a Christian, and his opponent in the dispute said something that was very striking. He said, I have never known a Christian businessman to make a decision like that that will cost him money. And maybe that's an indictment in some way, but it's, it's one to rejoice over anyway, isn't it? And do you know what actually happened? True story. The end result was that they, they actually did, they settled the dispute in a good way. And afterward, the second man asked the first man to do a Bible study with him. And they ended up studying the word of God together because of the testimony of this guy who said, there is something bigger than me here. There is something going on that's not just about my rights and what good would it have come if he hadn't taken that step? Well, not that kind of witness anyway. It's Jesus' words, isn't it? I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. The wisdom from above teaches us to say there's more to this than my rights, than my interests. But that other kind of wisdom, that unspiritual evil wisdom of jealousy rears its head when the biggest concern I have is me. Now, true confession, I see this in myself quite a lot, actually. When I sense that someone is in some way not giving me the respect I deserve, watch out, if I'm really honest. And that hits home for me at home sometimes. When I get, you know, a cheeky comment, it's too late, they're, they're too young, they're not on Zoom to hear this. Um, so, you hear a kind of a comment coming back and you get something that's disrespect and, and you just, I'm gonna pound down on this and there, I will be respected as a father and, and I'm there, I gotta, there's six, four, and two. Let me just put that in perspective. Um, so it's a little bit irrational, but there you go. It, it, it calls something up when I feel like I'm being challenged as somehow to my worth, my value. Whoa. I'm sure there are at least a few people in here who know what I mean. Um, do you know what comes up in church life? It really does. This sort of jealousy and selfish pride can, can show up even in, in church and, uh, and in the life of the church. And I'll tell you a secret, if you don't tell anybody at Apsley, because it's just down the road here. Elders sometimes find it hard to get feedback that's negative. We really do. I can say that because I'm, I'm an elder there. And it's, it's sometimes you, you, you get kind of pushed back on something and it's just like, and it's very easy to become something that it's really not, that it's not a personal thing, or even if it is, to deal with it. And I'm told that it's easy, it's not always easy for people to take input from elders as well. Who knew? But in Christ's church, look, we desperately need to avoid that one kind of wisdom. 
that goes that way, that reacts like that, and to walk in the other, if we want to really see the fruitfulness James talks about, the harvest of righteousness and peace that comes from that way of leading. Our world needs that witness. But more specifically for Saul, he was upset over someone coming along who could do things, well, they could, he could do them better, really. He could do them better than, than he did. He had bigger opportunities for service, and he was younger. What can help me, though? Whenever it comes, however it comes for you and me, how, what's going to help us to check that earthly, natural tendency to demand respect, to get ornery and cross when I'm not given it? Whether it's with my kids or in the local church or that idiot on the road who cut me off. Well, I think first we should notice that whenever we get that kind of a, uh, an opportunity, when something like that comes up that triggers us in that way, we're being given a really good chance to see what we think is the most important. I'm being given a chance to say, what is ultimate here? Me and the size of me and my perception of me? When my proud heart feels wounded? That's maybe because I've taken over the throne again made myself king and expected everything and everyone to bow down to me. The answer to that tendency is, is lived out in front of us in these chapters, though, by Jonathan. Do you know what Jonathan's superpower is? If you know what I mean. It was being able to genuinely rejoice in the success of others, even when it threatened his position. How good are you at that? When someone else does really well, when someone has a success, the kind of thing that you were aimed at and they get it, how much can you rejoice with them? Well, how could he do that? The reason he could do that was because his heart was not set on himself, but on God's glory and the good of his people. And from the first time we meet him in 1 Samuel, Jonathan inspires faith in God and and risk-taking service for God, for the people of God. It's not his life, his position, his future kingdom that meant the most to him. It was what was good for the name of God, what was good for his people, what was good for others. He basically said, when, when presented as the, at the start, as we read with David, with this hero who, who saved the nation, he basically says, look, I stepped down. I resign. Just, just let me come alongside and serve alongside the Lord's anointed. This was the crown prince. This was the one who stood to gain the throne. And he said, no, that's, there's someone better at it than me, so I step down and let me serve alongside. He was able to do that because he saw that the greater thing and the thing he was really, that really gave him purpose in life was to live for God's glory and what God wanted, not literally to make himself king. He had a right view of himself before the Lord and before the Lord's plans. And you know, that's why the Lord was able to use him. And if he can use us, that will be why. Because we lay down everything at his feet and say, Lord, what do you want? And for the opposite reason, that's why the Lord wasn't able to use his father Saul. Even though, thankfully, he'd gone his own, his own way, the Lord still, thankfully, tried to slow down Saul's self-destruction. 
And that's, that's what chapter 19 gives us. And in brief, those three things, what he says, are, what he puts in front of him are three roadblocks to stop Saul's path of self-destructive pride. The Lord in his mercy first puts Jonathan's logic to him and then his daughter's love, Michal's love again and then his own Holy Spirit taking over and knocking him down. And Jonathan steps in and we recall his love for David. He says, you know, Dad, don't you see what you're doing? Don't you see he's got nothing against you? And he talks him around through, through, through rational argument and he brings him around and he finally says, yes, okay, I accept. And he does for a while. And the policy was reversed and David is no longer, you know, a wanted man. He's back in the palace until the next victory came. And then Saul tries to pin him to the wall again with a spear. But then with Michal and her love, when, when Saul sends men to kill him after he's escaped to his own home and, and, and then she hides these, these, this, this, this makes it look like there's someone in the bed to give him more time to escape and David escapes out the window and he, she lies to her father. And some people have a problem with that and think, well, is that a good way for the Lord to work through a lie? But I think the real point is that here was a man who, whose belief in lies led his family to lie to him to save David. He was turning people against him through his belief of the lie. His jealousy had lied to him and acting on that lie leads him to being lied to until he's in an echo chamber of falsehoods and can no longer know the true from the false. And we'll not mention any contemporary political leaders uh, for sake of not stirring anything up. But the Holy Spirit's personal revelation comes next. As, as he had at the start of his career, Saul was given an, this prophetic ecstatic experience where the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And the first time it showed Saul that, yes, you really are king. This is in fulfillment of God's word. Now, the second time it comes, that we read about there at the end of chapter 19, it comes to say, Saul, this is as far as you go. You are pushing and pushing and I'm going to show you that I can take control of your very body away from you. I can pull back and you, you are going to be lying there in front of, naked in front of David and not be able to do what you want to do. And I'm going to show you who's really in control. And it was a merciful warning from God that he won't be able to kill David and you're only going to go so far before I step in and stop you. In his mercy, God gave Saul those three roadblocks, things to make him stop and think. But on each occasion, he regrouped, he set out again to follow his own jealous, murderous mission. And it's partly that effort on God's part that makes Saul's story such a sad one. But the good news is that we're not told Saul's story to depress us or to beat ourselves up over any similarities we see and our own stories. Scripture is working hard to, to show us the dark background against which the grace of God shines. And that's the Saul's history. It's no different. Much of the good news comes through when we compare his choices with his children and again with Jonathan. Just recall what Jonathan did the start of 18. He willingly stripped himself of all his weapons, everything by which he could possibly fight against this savior hero of Israel who had just come on the scene. Despite all the evidence that 
God was with David. Saul didn't do that. He refused to do that. Yet he did eventually, well, have to strip down, didn't he? Not willingly. He was compelled to, as we just thought. By the end of that, we find him there, having been pushed to his knees and flat on his back. And that brings really the big decision here in these two chapters. Between self-love and love for God's anointed. It's the contrast between Saul and Jonathan, as well as between Saul and Michal and all the rest of the people, really. Saul was happy to use David when it suited him, but he wasn't about to surrender himself to David or hand over his throne. So what is the secret to living out that wisdom that's from above? How do you follow in the steps of Jonathan and not Saul? Well, the secret really is what Jonathan, Michal, and the people knew. David, God's anointed king, drew out their love by his actions, by his character, until they actually wanted to lay everything down and follow him. And you know, God still works in that same way today. He, he saves people by drawing their hearts out to love the Savior, his son. God's king, his Messiah, Jesus. And he's going to one day come and reign in power. And yes, right now he does, it's true, he commands all everywhere to repent and to believe the gospel. And what is that gospel? At its heart, it's the greatest act of love in all of history. The innocent, holy son of God takes our sin on himself and says, I will pay for this with my own life. And it brings to us the question, are we willing to just, like Saul, use God while it suits us? Or have we stepped down from the throne and bowed the knee to him and said, whatever you want, my Lord and my God. And for those of us who have, it's awfully easy to try to get back on the throne, isn't it? I mean, daily. To come back and say, I see again what you've done. I step down off the throne. Take my weapons. Take it all. What do you want? Christ then says, okay, now let's go on like that. I've died to forgive your sin. That proves my love for you. Now grow in your security in me as, as you grow to know more of my love. And you know, as we do, he'll transform our relationships with others. By putting him first as the ultimate, you will get every other relationship in right perspective. And I'm not saying that's going to be easy. I'm not saying everything's fixed overnight. But he says, you put me first, then let me fix the rest. Let me work on the rest. Let's deal with those together. And so the wisdom that comes from above, it ultimately leads to the feet of the crucified and risen King, Jesus Christ, who will raise up those who come and fall at his feet and raise us up for a life of fruitful service for him. The wisdom that's from below, the logic of selfish pride, well, that'll lead to as much destruction as you've got time for. For as many years as you've got, see how you can fill it up. Like Saul's, your life won't be wasted, though it can stand as a warning to others. But that, too, would be a tragic waste. We thank the Lord for the way he continues to pursue, even like he did Saul. And you just think, as we finish, about one other man, also named Saul, 
of Tarsus, who was, happened to be of the same tribe, interestingly enough. And as the Apostle Paul, as he became, he eventually wrote these words in 2 Corinthians 4. He said, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And yes, Paul loved Jesus Christ, but it wasn't Paul's great love for Christ that made the difference ultimately. It was Christ's love for Paul that totally changed his way of thinking from someone who killed Jesus' followers to somebody who served them with his life. His love, Christ's active love, drew Paul's heart and he bent his knees before the Messiah, Jesus, the ultimate king that God had in mind. Paul had lived his life by a certain kind of wisdom for many years. And he ended up saying, that's all rubbish. Give that all away. The love of Christ has changed me completely and I'm on that path now with him. And he ended up living a life of eternal consequence. So while the big contrast is between Saul and Jonathan, there are really two Sauls that we make our choice to follow. So may it be for us today that the Lord Jesus in his love draws our hearts and makes us bend our knees and accept the one whose rule was the only true freedom, the only true freedom that exists in all the universe. Let's pray. For the sheer wonder of it, Lord, we thank you that you desire to have our love and affection, to have our service, to have us as everything we are. That you would take broken sinners who had nothing good to say about you, who, who if left our own way even this day would, would run away and you call out and continue to pursue and to capture our hearts with your love. Help us to walk in the way of wisdom that sees you as the ultimate. Help us to be captured by that vision that Jonathan saw of God's anointed king. Help us to walk in the way of Paul, of Saul of Tarsus, and say the love of Christ compels me. I follow him because he is who he is and he's done what he's done and he loves the way he loves. For his name's sake, we ask it, Lord. So, so we ask, amen. Thank you, Ed and Josh, for...